It's a pretty amazing birth announcement. We've said it before. We've made it to the third of those descriptors of the Christ child. He is given these titles. Remember, they're not names. His name is not Jesus' first name, Christ, middle name, Lord, last name. But Jesus being his given name, then he is given these titles, descriptions of what this child will do. We looked the first week that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. We broke that down, those two ideas, and we found out that Jesus indeed is the wonder of all wonders, and his counsel to us will be counsel given correctly, wisely. We talked about him being mighty God, that title talking about the all-consuming power that is inherent in the very person of God. But the fact that Jesus will be just as much God as he is or was man, fully God, fully man. When we say that, when we accept that, we have actually summarized several hundred years of church history where the leaders, right after the time of Jesus and moving into those first two or three hundred years, argued about and debated and settled upon just how much Jesus was divine and how much he was human. And the best conclusion they came to is that Jesus is fully God as well as being fully man. He is the mighty God. So it's this morning that we turn our attention to the third of those descriptions, everlasting father. Now I need to clarify something here. If you've been watching and following these all along, we switched a word out on you here. We've been following the New American Standard Translation where it says eternal father. But we opted back to everlasting thanks to George Frederick Handel's Messiah because in the Hallelujah Chorus, it says everlasting father. And you can't say eternal with that many syllables. So we're just opting back to what most of us are familiar with means the same thing, basically. Everlasting, eternal. Everlasting Father. Well, let's do what we've done with the first two. Let's break this down. There are two ideas in each one of these descriptors. So here it is going to be everlasting. Spend a couple minutes talking about it. And then Father. Let's spend some time talking about what it means for Christ for the Messiah to be the everlasting father. If you take everlasting, look it up in a Hebrew dictionary, in a lexicon, and you try to compare other passages that might refer and use this word in the same way there are, it basically is going to be wrapped up in the idea that it's never ending, never ending, everlasting or eternal, whichever one you choose. Everlasting literally means never ending. What does that tell us? It tells us that we need not worry about whether or not God holds this world in his hands, about whether or not God created all things out of nothing and placed us here. We need not worry about those things because God's power, God's character, God in Christ He is everlasting. 
This blows the mind, but in simple terms, he was here before anything else was. So you just have to, in your mind, go back and continue to see that when you reach back in history, as many authors and philosophers have tried to do, they get to a certain point to where they hit a brick wall in their thinking and their logic. And they can't go beyond that wall that represents when all things were created. But John, in his gospel, makes it easy work. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see, John was given the insight that no others had. That when he went all the way back to the beginning, when he hit that wall, it wasn't a roadblock for him. The wall disintegrated. And behind it, behind creation, behind all things, he saw Jesus. The everlasting, never-ending Messiah. Father, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of father, or you think of dad, or you think of daddy. Basically, once again in scripture, it means many things, but these two descriptors seem to rise to the top, at least to me. That when we think of God as our father, Jesus as an everlasting father, we think of provider, We think of the fact that a father, if fathers are doing their duty, if they are fulfilling their role within the framework of the family, that the father is certainly an example of what it means to provide, to be provision, to be the one who seeks provision for your loved ones. It also talks about being a protector, that the father is the one who is the front line of defense against any attack upon his loved ones. Now, you can add to this list, but I think the heart of the matter when it comes to describing Jesus as everlasting father, it encompasses these ideas of being the provider, of being the protector of his children. That is, of each one of us. So, father... Many think of father and their mind goes somewhere else. Their hearts were broken by the unkept promises of a father. We understand and know that we do live in a world of darkness and despair and broken relationships. And there are those dads among us who fail miserably. But that does not negate the wonder, the ideal the concept of what it means for Jesus to be prophesied as our Father. Well, let me ask you a question. How is it with your Father? What comes to mind? How are things with Dad? When we think of what Jesus and who he came to be in fulfilling this role of Father... We can go through several passages in Scripture, but there is none to compare to a story that Jesus told 
It's called a parable. A parable, a story, not trying to say it didn't happen, that he conjured it up. It really doesn't matter. The truth of it is everlasting because it talks about the real nature of God in Christ as our Father. It's in Luke, the 15th chapter. It is a lengthy passage, but it's a story that captivates. Perhaps you've heard it before, but I'm going to ask you to pretend that you haven't heard it. Pretend this is the first time these words have ever been spoken in your presence and you're taking in the most amazing descriptor, description of what it means to be a father. And Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. When he had spent everything... A severe famine occurred in that country, and he became impoverished. So he went and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country and sent him into his fields to feed the swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, but no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread And I am dying here with hunger. I will get up. I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and felt compassion for him. And he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. And he said, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. A couple of phrases. Go back to verse 12. The younger son approached his father at the beginning of this episode. And what did he say? He said, Father, give me. Father, give me. Give me, in this case, as Christ told the event, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Now, our customs, the way we divide out wealth or the way parents uh, will possessions and money, how they provide for their children is a little bit different than it was done in the first century. In the first century world, in the New Testament world, in this, in the background of this story, what the young man really was saying is, dad, I wish you to be dead. 
I wish you to no longer exist. I want my share, which meant if the father was to give his share to his son, to either one of them, it meant it was not done until the father's death. And so the younger son, the younger son is telling his father he wished he was dead. I wish you to be dead. I want what's going to come to me, but I don't want to wait until your funeral. Go ahead and give it to me now. Jesus telling of the story says that the father acquiesced. He did not argue. He did not say, you are no longer my son. He could have done that. It was his prerogative. The family estate belonged in the name of the father And when the son came with this unbelievable request, it seemed so selfish simply because it is. Father, give me. And the father did. Now think about that for just a moment. Father, give me. How many times is that exactly the way you approach God? Father, give me what I want. Father, give me what I deserve. How many times in prayer do we cut right to the chase and say, this is my will and this is what I want and give it to me now. See, that is the way many people live. And when they approach God, when they think of anything in spiritual terms, it's always predicated by, Father, give me. It's mine. I want it, and I want it now. Story tells us that, as we said, the father divided up his wealth between his two sons, giving the younger one his share of what would come to him if he had waited upon his father's death. But he wanted to hasten that. And the father put it into his hands. Now we can summarize here. We know what happened. It says the son left and went away to a faraway country. It wasn't that far away compared to how we look at distances now, but it was far enough away that it was out of touch, out of sight, He did exactly what he wanted to do. And with his pockets full of the inheritance that he demanded his father give him, he wasted it, no surprise. He wasted it doing things that he wanted to do. The writer here, translating from the original language, says he wasted it on loose living. Well, you fill in the blank there. He lost it all. Then what? He came to his senses. He realized that once he lost it all and no one was giving anything to him, the only thing he could do was tend to the slop of the pigs. And he began to realize that he had fallen so low that if he could grab some of the husks that the pigs were eating, but apparently he couldn't. You know how razorbacks are. They're very, very stingy. They weren't about to give up anything to anyone. 
And so the young man found himself sitting in the slop and realizing he couldn't even, he didn't even have the wherewithal to grab the food that the pigs were eating. And then the light bulb came on in his mind. How many of my father's hired hands, he probably could name them. They had more than enough. And it says that the young man realized, was it like that? Probably not. But at some point in his life, some point in this journey of hitting the bottom, of going down the road of despair, that the younger son did not say, Father, give me. But he said in verse 19, when I go see my dad, I'm going to tell him, Father, make me. Hey, this is no mistake here, folks. Jesus is very careful about the words that he says in this story. That the young son went from father, give me what rightfully is mine, what I want. I don't care about the attendant circumstances. I don't care about what it's going to cost you. I don't care about how you think about me. I want it and I want it now. Father, give me. And now it's father, make me whatever you want me to be. Folks, that's a life-changing attitude. Father, give me. Father, make me. Make me, in this instance, make me as one of your hired men. Make me as the lowest on the totem pole. Just what he was saying was, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I ask for forgiveness, but I don't ask to be reinstated. I just ask you to let me come home. And you make me whatever you want me to be. Most of us who have that give me attitude, when it really comes down to it, We hesitate and we can't get those words out of our mouth. Father, make me. Is it pride? Perhaps. Is it being afraid? No doubt that's something to do with it. But the young man, he said it. He uttered the words. He changed the course of his life. Unbeknownst to him, he didn't know what his father would do. But he simply said, Father, make me what you want me to be. Well, we read what happened. Dad, one day, as he did every day, looking on the horizon, hoping and praying that his son would return, he sees that figure. It looks familiar to him, but then again, it looks a little bit different. But then he realizes it's his younger son. His younger son is coming home. And you notice that the young man, we already know what he planned to say. Jesus told us that. He rehearsed it before he ever set foot to go back home. He said, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He already rehearsed that. But when the young man tries to explain it to his father, his father cuts him off. Never lets him say anything other than the fact that the father turned to the servants and said, Get the party ready. Kill the fattened calf. Put the ring on my son's finger. Put the best robe on him. We're here to celebrate. That's what a father does. Father protects. Father provides. A father 
knows when to show mercy. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry, was not willing to go in. His father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you. I've never neglected a command of yours. Yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said, son, you've always been with me. All that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead, has begun to live, was lost, and has been found. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Story of a man who had two sons, the younger, wishing the father dead. Father, give me. Coming to his senses. Father, make me. Welcome back home. But then you've got this ending. This ending that at first glance makes no sense at all. And the reason it doesn't make any sense is because I'm convinced this is not what Jesus wanted to say. This is not how he wanted to end the story. Now, I'm reading into the text, but I ask you to imagine with me for just a moment that right there at verse 25, when it says the older son was in the field, that Jesus didn't want to tell it that way from that point on to the end. But this is what he wanted to say. He wanted to say something like this. He wanted to say that the younger son left and squandered all of his money on loose living, just like we already know. But back home, every single day, the father was up early, looking at the horizon as the sun came up, waiting and wondering if he would ever see the familiar figure of his younger son again. And this tore the older brother up from the inside out. Not with anger, not with bitterness, but the older son could no longer bear to see their father suffer. And so the older son came to his dad and said, Dad, I'm leaving. And he saw immediately the look on the father's face. He said, no, you don't understand. I'm not leaving because I'm mad. I'm leaving because I love my little brother. And I'm going to go and I'm not coming back till I find him. So when you look on the horizon beginning tomorrow, you look for not one, but you look for two figures. That's what Jesus wanted to say. And then he would have concluded the story by saying that the older son followed the money or the lack thereof, followed all the clues. Have you seen a young man who seems to have everything going for him and he's got a whole lot of money? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We remember him. We had quite a great time. Till when? Till 
the money stopped coming till he stopped being the host. And the last we heard from him, he's down in the pig slop. So the older brother made his way to the pigsty. And he found his little brother. And he brought him out. And he cleaned him up. And he said, it's not too late. Let's go home. And what Jesus wanted to say was the dad got up just as he did every morning and he looked out on the horizon and on that one particular morning he did see not one but he saw two two figures one upright one walking with certainty the other not quite as confident in in the very way that he walked but the father smiled And he ran out and he embraced them both because his sons had come home. That, my friends, is what Jesus wanted to say. I take a news feed every day. This morning... Talks about millennials, people who are, according to this survey, ages 23 to 38. And it says most millennials are now almost as likely to say that they have no religion as they are to identify as Christian. For a long time, it wasn't clear this youthful defection from religion would be temporary or permanent. It seemed possible that as millennials grew older, at least some would return to a more traditional religious life. But there's mounting evidence that today's younger generation may be leaving the church for good. Social science research has long suggested that Americans' relationship with religion has a tidal quality, T-I-D-A-L. People who were raised religious find themselves drifting away as young adults only to be drawn back in when they find spouses and begin to raise their own families. Some argued that young adults just hadn't been pulled back into the fold of organized religion, church, especially since they were hitting major milestones like marriage and parenthood later on. But now many millennials have spouses, children, and mortgages And there's little evidence of a corresponding surge in religious interest. A new national survey from the American Enterprise Institute of more than 2,500 Americans found a few reasons why millennials may not return to church ever. It has something to do with Father You see, you notice in the story Jesus told, the dad was the same, never wavered. It was the relationship that the younger son had with his father and the relationship that the older son had with the father. Both relating to the same dad, but the relationships were vastly different. Why? Because the relationship, father to son, parent to child, 
God to child, to each one of us. It depends on how we relate to our Father, doesn't it? That one, Father, give me. Another, Father, make me. And those choices are from one and the same in one instance. Or it could be that one staying close to home always held some type of grudge, bore some type of superiority complex over all others. And it bleeds right down from the pages of the first century of the Bible to where we are today. People leaving, people wondering what the idea of religion and Christianity is all about. And all they do is look to how we relate to our Father. And apparently a lot of millennials, a lot of people don't like what they see. That's a hard pill to swallow. That's a tough one. There's something there going on that we've got to deal with because our Father in heaven is everlasting and He loves us and He wants the best for us. So we have to decide if our life is going to be lived. Father, give me or Father, make me what you want me to be. And it appears that the way we relate to our Heavenly Father is going to have a great impact on how a future generation is going to respond as well. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to come before you, hear your word, sing praises to your name, and give you glory. Father, it's our intention to honor you, to obey you. Help us to be children who look to you as a heavenly father who deserves our all. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We wrap up this hour the way we do each and every time we gather. We give an opportunity to respond to to obey could be that you're here today and you've never said yes to Jesus to the claim he has put upon each one of our lives when he went to a cross and died that we might live that transaction of salvation if you want to look at it that way is a two way street in some ways it's all God yes it's his love for us no doubt But there is a responsibility on our part to receive the gift, to take it and make it our own. And so if that's the desire of your heart today, if for the first time in your life or for the first time in a long time, or maybe the cobwebs have been torn away where you can see clearly that you're dealing with a heavenly father who loves you. So I would ask if that's where you are in life to come down to let us pray for you put your faith in Christ and make it make it a choice because it will affect the rest of your life 
Maybe you're here today and you know the Lord just never told anyone, publicly professed your faith in him. Maybe you've never followed him in believer's baptism. Let's talk about it. Maybe a church is what you're looking for. As a follower of Jesus, maybe you've been disconnected from church for some time. Maybe you're wondering if it's worth coming back to. It is. We're God's people. We stumble. But I pray we're not like that older son. Angry and embittered. But that we're like the older son Jesus wanted to talk about. Who spared no expense. Who did whatever was necessary to bring a little brother home. If you're looking for a church where you can serve, where you can belong, here we are. And you join simply by stepping out, coming forward. That's the beginning. And then for many of us, it's Father, give me. Father, make me. What's it going to be? Choose. We stand together. We sing. We wait for you. As God leads, you respond.